Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Seriously, I swear, I've just been getting over a cold. This really is me. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm so very happy to welcome writer and producer Liz Hanna. Hello. Hi. Um, and for those who are not familiar with Liz's work, let me give you a quick primer. Originally from New York, Liz moved to Los Angeles to attend graduate school at AFI. Fancy! <laughs> After graduating with an MFA in producing, Hannah spent the next few years working in development at Denver and Delilah before eventually leaving to write full-time. Her script for The Post was ranked second on the 2016 blacklist before being purchased by Amy Pascal's Pascal Pictures two days before the U.S. presidential election. Her script for The Post was then directed by Steven Spielberg and starred, starred Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. It follows the story of the unlikely partnership of Catherine Graham, played by Streep, the first female publisher of the Washington Post, and its volatile, driven editor, Ben Bradley, played by Hanks, as they come together with the New York Times to expose a massive cover-up of government secrets that spanned four decades and four U.S. presidents. Y'all, it's a real story. The original screenplay was nominated for a Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Award. The Post was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Liz is now developing a female anthology series for UCP and a feature script called Only Plane in the Sky for MGM, which was adapted from the political article by Garrett Graff, which after I, I read that bio, I was like, oh, I have to go and read that article. Like, what is this? Did you read it? <laughs> no. Okay. I, I was like, okay, I'm bookmarking this yeah. and I'm going to come right back to that. The article's amazing. So the article is an oral history of Air Force One on 9-11. So everyone who was on Air Force One that day, or at least, you know, like 90% of them, Garrett was able to interview. Um, George W. Bush was not interviewed. Um, he actually doesn't give a lot of interviews on 9-11. He you know, doesn't want it to be about him, which yeah. I, I have to respect. But um, So, yeah, he wrote this article for Politico. I think it came out in September 2016, and MGM bought it. And so I just finished a draft on it. Damn. Okay. So yeah. super light material. Exactly. Yeah. I love this. We're going straight like <laughs> like Liz writes the post and then like, let's just keep going political. Just, yeah, just go, yeah. go, 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 go. <laughs> um, so today I'm really excited because Liz picked one of my favorite films to talk about. And it is Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs. Can you tell me why that's one of your favorite genre films? Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, I think because it's it has one of the most amazing female characters um, in cinema. I think uh, she's an incredible heroine who is vulnerable and flawed and not sort of um, this kind of stereotypically um, two-dimensional hero that you see, either masculine or feminine, um, or man or woman, that is, uh, you know, not, not going to make mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and Clarice, I think is a, you know, it's an amazing performance by Jodie Foster. Um, B, the character is uh, really complex. You know, we get in very interesting flashbacks into her past. We get very, and, you know, she the first time she talks to Hannibal, she cries. You know, there are very weak things about her or things that are typically thought of as weak yeah. that actually I think are what make her feel really well-rounded and human. So by the time... We get to the end when she is our heroine. You know, it's it's you feel like you are her. Yeah. Um, so that I think as a whole, just a, as a woman, you know, growing up, you don't you didn't get that many uh, female her heroines in in uh, in cinema, let alone in genre films. Yes. Um, but then also, you know, something that could have, I think, been a really typical horror film is 
such a stand. You know, I was just watching it again this morning. It's such a standalone piece of cinema. You know, the, everything mm-hmm. is so thought out. The team behind it. You know, Jonathan Demme, Tak Fujimoto, Colleen Atwood. Like it is a best of the best of you know Howard Shore. Like the best of the best of the team, and feels so much like a collaborative piece. And we're going to get into talking about those individuals who made this film great. But for those who haven't seen Silence of the Lambs, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto, as you've heard before, is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep Silence of the Lambs first, please go ahead now. This is your warning. This is your warning. Okay, <laughs> now let me do a quick introduction of Silence of the Lambs. Written by Ted Talley and directed by Jonathan Demme in 1991, Silence of the Lambs tells the story of Clarice Starling, a young FBI agent trying to prove herself in a male-dominated field by bringing home a politician's kidnapped daughter. To solve the case, she consults with one of the most notorious serial killers ever to be captured, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. He's a hyper-intelligent debonair cannibal. Lecter knows this other serial killer called Buffalo Bill. That's a very interesting nickname. Mm -hmm. But will only release clues to Clarice if she divulges personal information about herself. A quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. He also asks for a promise of a prison transfer if he successfully helps them capture Bill as he's locked up with a bunch of criminals he finds very vulgar. (laughs) Clarice tells Lecter about her father's murder and... She gets her first clues. But the prison warden, Chilton, uh, records their conversations, and eventually, you know, everything kind of blows up. She's getting too personal. Um, Clarice's time is running out, so she trades personal information about another traumatic childhood event with Lecter, and he tells her to find her answers in one of his patient's case files before Clarice is escorted off the prison property. The FBI has their own leads tracking down a man named Jamie Gum to an Illinois address, while Clarice heads to Ohio to interview Buffalo Bill's first victim. Only the first guy she interviews might be her last. And suddenly she's got to fight to the death. Yep. That's it in a nutshell. That's it. You don't, you don't even need to watch the movie now. <laughs> no, nope, that's it. It's totally. I'm, I'm wondering if like any of our younger listeners haven't seen this because I feel like everyone yeah. from, you know, maybe our generation. Yeah. It's been kind of a coming of age type of thing. Well, so I'm excited for people who have not seen it. I mean, it's funny. I didn't watch it until I was a teenager, I think. I mean, it, the book definitely came out when I was a kid and mm-hmm. my parents didn't see it and we never watched in the house because both of my parents read the book and they were so terrified and traumatized by the book itself that yes. when the movie came out, they were like, absolutely not. And these were parents who, like, let me see whatever I want. Like, took me to see Jurassic Park when I was, like, six. Or, yes. You know, like, there was not um, – I had a very traumatizing experience at seeing Edward Scissorhands at a very young age. <laughs> um, but, like, silence was just not something that I was really, like, allowed – it wasn't even, like, allowed. It was just, like, not in my on my radar. And then I watched it at a slumber party one time. And I remember thinking I should be afraid of it. Like, I remember mm-hmm. sort of intellectually being like, oh, this is scary. But it's so much about the character and so much about Clarice that I was like, oh, I'm actually not scared. Yeah. I think it's funny because it's probably one of the only Academy Award winning pictures that people, kids will watch at a slumber party because yeah. it's a, like illicit. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Which, oh. <laughs> by the way, I have to share with people that when I was researching this, I found videos of them accepting their um, their awards because uh-huh. they they swept. Yeah, they got I think five for five of the. Yeah, yeah. In '92, they swept, and Whoopi Goldberg was loving it. Like <laughs> she's in the background, and she's just like, yes, yes. <laughs> Especially for Hannibal Lecter. Nice, um, nice. So I want to talk about Thomas Harris's book. Yeah. 
Um, Because like you said, it was the scary book. Everyone, you know, was talking about it. But everyone wanted to adapt that book. And it's interesting that Ted Talley actually got the blessing from Harris himself in no other writer did mm-hmm. um, because they had known each other from dinner parties in New York. Right. And so he like got the first advanced copy. And I love thinking that Gene Hackman yeah. had actually gotten the rights with Orion Pictures and that he was going to write and direct and possibly star as yeah. Hannibal Lecter, which is mind blowing. It is. It's mind blowing. Well, because I feel like Anthony Hopkins <laughs> is completely that part like he is Hannibal Lecter I mean it's by the way he's on screen for like 23 minutes or something like that you know like he's (laughs) he's not he's by far not the lead of the film but he takes up the entire movie with that performance and I I know by the way that somebody else had played Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter before yeah it was um Brian um Brian uh, Cox yes because he's in the autopsy of Jane Doe and some other he's yeah um and and then obviously, you know, subsequently Hannibal's been played by a number of like by Mads and other people. Yes. Um but like Anthony Hopkins is just Hannibal Lecter. Well let's let's go into talking yeah. about that because um at the time he wasn't really doing American movies. This was it's hard for me to think back to a time when like Anthony Hopkins wasn't just a part of our right. national consciousness. Because he's British if you can't tell. <laughs> um and so he hadn't really even thought about doing a dark thriller, but it, it turned out that, like, Demi, Tally, and Foster, like, they all knew that they wanted not an American. Like, Dustin Hoffman hmm. was mm-hmm. going to be thrown around in mm-hmm. there. But then they were like, we don't want someone who's, like, in Stanislavski or Method. Right. Like, America, because they're talking about realism, basically. Right. And, the, you know, everyone at that time, and still is, I think, is really obsessed with the idea of realism. Yeah. And, and realism is, you know, not even real. It's the, yeah. the playing of like recreating reality of what you think. Well, because so it's, it's all make believe. You it, know, it's we're all I'm watching a movie that's fictional. It's not a documentary. So, what? God, guys, FYI, spoiler <laughs> alert. I know if you made it this far, but I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, like, there's 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 something about the way that Anthony Hopkins plays it. I mean, you forget because he's a serial killer who's in prison but he was a psychologist yeah and there's some and he plays sort of the psychologist role to Clarice you yeah. know he very much and there is something I understand about that wanting the realism of that of somebody who's not actually playing the serial killer who's playing somebody who I think I read something um, that either uh, Demi said or somebody said that um, Anthony Hopkins was like well I don't want to play a crazy person and it's like no he's a sane person trapped in a, in the the, with the mind of an insane person, mm-hmm. and it and this idea of this dichotomy of this man who actually is good but has insanity in him, and so and you know the idea that you know when he first kind of connects with with Clarice, it's because she, he doesn't like what's been done to her. Is you know that Miggs like jacks off on her, and yeah, he, and that's what he finds offensive, and is like, okay, I'm going to take you in now. Yeah, it's like this politesse, you know, mm-hmm. that he wants, yeah. like, to maintain, yeah. even if he's done... He eats people. He Well, I mean, it's a character who has his own moral code. That's exactly And that's right. a great villain character exactly. to have, and more villain characters should have yeah. that. You know, instead it's just kind of like, oh, well, they're just bad. No, this is a gray area. I mean, I think that's I mean, that's the thing that's most interesting to me. It's the most, thing that's most interesting to me as a writer is looking at the gray area. Like we don't live our lives in black and white. We don't. Uh, people can try. It doesn't work. Um, we all live with various shades of gray. And I think for me, the films that are the films, the books, you know, everything that are the most uh, in 
successful or that I connect the most to are the ones that show that real human condition, which is nothing is right, nothing is wrong. There is a middle that we have to exist in in order for society to work. It also goes back to the Clarice character and how she's played. You know, I think I think their relationship in particular, I mean, spe- speaking specifically about realism, is like, you know, this is, this is a woman who is definitely a woman in a man's world. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Hannibal, he looks at himself as sort of a sane person in insane world. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's surrounded by what he considers to be animals and he doesn't want, you know, in this prison and he doesn't belong there. And I think there's this interesting dichotomy of that and it's something that's really relatable. You know, I mean, any woman can feel this way. I mean, we live very much in in, in a world that is run by men and, yes. and often are um, outnumbered. Um, and I think that's something that, like, the first shot you ever see with Clarice with other people is when she gets into the elevator and it's all men around her. That's one of my favorite shots, actually, yeah. because they're they're tall. They're all giants. And they're wearing red. Yeah. And they're all, um, they're all like, from the crew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 100%. from the crew of the film. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another interesting aspect to think yeah. about that, you know, this is a crew of all giant men who are making this movie. And then yeah. they're also playing these parts of these FBI agents. Mm-hmm. You know, Demi would pull them from. Yeah. And that scene, that shot, um, I think when Demi died, that was the shot that I wrote on. Mm. And to, to eulogize mm-hmm. him, just how beautiful it was and how how much he understood the, the uh, female condition. Well, I think that's what it is. It's, it speaks so much to how in tune he was with the movie he was making and the perspective he was making it from. You know, he was I – mean, we can talk about the POV of the camera for an hour and a half. You yeah. know, I mean, the fact that – And we will. I mean, uh, yeah. just <laughs> so you guys know we're going to talk about we're, that. We're, going, we're definitely going to have to dive into that. But I mean, the fact that the first time you ever see her in an enclosed space, you know, and or, or you see the faces of other people around her is in this elevator and she's sort of – and she's the tiniest person by far. Yeah. And – She's wearing gray. They're wearing red. And she sort of acknowledges them and has this kind of little look that's like, all right, yep, this is what I'm surrounded by. No, let me let me ask you, because the book is told from multiple perspectives. Right. So it was a it was a big, you know, we'll talk about the challenge that of making a movie from just a female perspective when yep. you ad- adapt it. But it's something that I was really curious about when um, when you were writing the post, you mm-hmm. know, this is. An adaptation of sorts mm-hmm. from one of her books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how did you decide that you would want to take both a little bit of Ben Bradley mm-hmm. and Kay Graham and tell the story kind of simultaneously from the two of them? So it's interesting because, you know, the movie, the A plot, if you were, is about the Pentagon Papers. Yeah. And, and that very much was, for me, um, a device to tell Kay's story. You know, what what intrigued me about telling the to, about that about telling the story of the post telling the story of, of that time was always Kay. Yeah, I had read her memoir when I was in my early 20s and I just thought she was an incredible woman and I was frankly like why is there not a movie about her? Yeah. And then, you know, it's it was hard to make a movie about her cuz she lived 10 different lives and there yes. really could have been any any moment of her life could have been uh ripe for the picking for a film. And the thing for me was um this sort of structure of this week in her life, 10 days in her life, really mm-hmm. offered the opportunity to make a character piece um, and to not have to worry about finding the beginning, middle, and end because it was presented very much in this way 
of the of the finding of the papers, the papers being published, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was always told from uh, the perspective of Kay. And it's funny because, you know, I mean, if you tell the story of the Pentagon Papers, you can tell in 15 different – you could tell it from the point of view of the New York Times. You could tell it from the point of view of Dan Ellsberg. You know, there's a lot yeah. of different ways to do it. Um, and for me, the real driving force was Kay's story because, you know, I think um, all movies are about change. You know, that's yeah. that's what – compels me at least is watching a character change um and i think uh for me it's why i get attracted to true stories often is because the events have already been laid out and you can really take your time to delve into character Mm -hmm. and um with this with the post in particular it was such a an opportunity to tell the story of this woman who really goes through such a, a an enormous change over the course of 10 days basically yeah and at the same time, tell the point of view of the men in her life, um, you know, I mean, and specifically tell the point of view of Ben Bradley. Um, and I think, you know, it really came up when I was reading um, Ben's memoir, which I knew I had wanted to tell the story from Kay's perspective, and I couldn't really crack it. And then when I was reading Ben's memoir, I realized that this was also about how their relationship kind of had this jumping off point, you know, yeah. that they, you know, Bradley and Kay Graham had this kind of legendary, you know, super te- superhero team almost um, and obviously had a lot of fame from Watergate. Uh, but this was really the moment that they became Bradley and Kay. It's like the meet cute for work. It is, which we I guess we no more meet cutes for work, though. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's it's a professional meet cute. It's a professional meet cute. I mean, and that is something that really attracted me to it was telling the story of a man and woman that wasn't romantic. And it's, you know, you've got another story here with um, Jodie Foster where we don't get to see her personal, we don't get to see her nope. personal life. It's just, you know, it's her work. It's her work. We yeah. don't have to have like a romantic interest for her. No. And I think, you know, often you get really stuck telling stories about women because you have to have the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the, you know, whatever. You have to include the romantic relationship. And I just don't think that's necessary for every story. And, and you know, I, it's interesting because in Silence of the Lambs, I think at one point Hannibal brings up her relationship with Crawford, with with Jack Crawford. And it's like, well, does he want to sleep with you or whatever? And she dismisses it so much because she's just like, that's not... It's it's almost like she's telling the audience, like, don't go there. Yeah. It's it's kind of awesome that it's just, nah, that's not what this movie's about. This isn't about that. It's beautiful. It really is. Um, Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, but then we're going to get back into the um, uh, uh, talking a little bit more about adaptation stuff Mm -hmm. um, and the process that you have for that. Okay, so one quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Jeff, and I love Stop Podcasting Yourself. My name is Sarah, and I love Switchblade Sisters. It's everything we kind of love as Americans about Canada kind of distilled into a, you know, comedy podcast. It gives you a chance to not only dig into the film itself, whatever they're talking about, but they start digging into just the art of filmmaking. And it's so important to hear about women having a perspective on film and women having a voice in entertainment. I became a Max Fun member because it's a podcast network really unlike anything else out there. You guys put out amazing content, so it's kind of a no-brainer to be a Max Fun member. These are listeners just like you, and they support Stop Podcasting Yourself and Switchblade Sisters with a Max Fun membership. The 2018 Max Fun Drive is April 2nd through 13th. And if you want to support your favorite shows too, it's the best time to sign up or upgrade your membership. 
Just tune in starting April 2nd, and we'll give you all the details. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you so much to everyone who supports Switchblade Sisters with a MaxFun membership. If you are not yet a member, the MaxFun Drive is the best time to start, so do not miss it. April 2nd through the 13th. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I am April Wolf, and I'm here talking today to Liz Hanna about Silence of the Lambs. Um, so getting back into adaptation things, um, one of the things uh, Jodie Foster had said was that this script that Tally wrote, um, basically they didn't do any redrafts on it, which is like, <laughs> what? And she said, very often you bring other writers on. This one came out of the typewriter and directly on screen, which is – that does not happen. Also typewriter. Amazing. Exactly, right? <laughs> the typewriter. Oh, God. Back in the day. Remember that? Yeah. I remember having a word processor. Um and uh, yeah, so I can't stress to our listeners enough how not no that doesn't happen. that doesn't happen. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk about your process of mm-hmm. adaptation and what that meant to you because they brought Josh on later on mm-hmm. and you guys collaborated. Mm-hmm. You had you know like you you gave them the story mm-hmm. and then you kind of all worked together to mm-hmm. to get it to the right point. Well, I think so much of that. Um, is about something we were talking about earlier, which is collaboration, you know, mm-hmm. in, in all forms. Um, so with The Post in particular, you know, it was – it was, it's weird because it was original, but it was an adaptation of somebody's life and a, of uh, an adaptation of sort of six different perspectives we'd gotten. Yeah, totally. And um, – you know, for us, I mean, for me, very much early on, I had no access to anyone because I was sitting at my kitchen table with no agent and, you yeah. know, writing this by myself. And when Steven Spielberg came on to direct it um, and, and then Josh came on, I want to say maybe three weeks after that, we fi- we suddenly had access to the entire Graham family, to the Bradley family, to the Washington Post itself, to Dan Ellsberg. You know, we had basically everybody that was affiliated with the script we were able to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, kind of there's two steps in that process for me. One is acquiring as much information as possible. So asking every question I can think of, asking the subjects, am I missing anything? Is there anything that you want me to know? And then taking a step back from it because you do have to create a narrative. You do have to condense all of this information into two hours and tell a story, tell a story from one perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, it's it's almost like um, you're, you're painting in black and white and then you get all of this rush of color from everybody else. And it gives you this way to make everything authentic. It gives you all of this, but it can provide all of these red herrings. You know, it can provide, yeah. you know, in, in, um, Reality. So there's this this uh, story that we had thought to include in the script, and at one point I think we put it in, and then we took it out because it it just it was so fascinating to us, but really didn't fit. It's a distraction. It to was the a narrative. distraction. Um, what was it? So in uh, real life, um, uh, Tony Bradley's sister had been killed a few years. Early a few years prior to the yeah. post, to the events of the post, and it was a uh, very um, sudden. It was surprising, and it was unsolved. And I believe it's still unsolved. Um, she was then revealed fairly soon after that to have been um, one of JFK's mistresses and had involvements with a variety of important people in D.C. And she had a journal that was hidden at one point and Ben Bradley found and 
there was this interaction with a CIA agent about who was going to destroy the the diary, and eventually Bradley had the responsibility, I believe, I, I think, to destroy the diary um, because nobody knows what was in that diary, but there was apparently very uh, um, incriminating information. Uh, okay, so we're talking about like the blend. I mean, in the film, you talk about uh, journalism and politics being a little bit too close exactly, for comfort at that exactly. time, and particularly with JFK. And so that was a story that um, it and that in particular really affected that 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 event really affected Ben Bradley and really he talks about it a lot in his book um and it was something that um was pretty um revelatory to him mm-hmm. and so we had a scene with him and Tony talking about it and it was one of those things that was like it gives so much color and texture to this world but it doesn't really it doesn't really provide anything for the story we're telling so you know, those are there are a lot of things that we got in in conversation and research and things that would provide that color, but you do have to streamline it at a certain point and say, okay, what's the movie we're actually telling? Um, I'm speaking of these things that you have to leave out of a script mm-hmm. that you wish you could put in. Mm-hmm. I do want to touch on um, something that the LGBTQ community mm. has raised mm-hmm. since the film was released. Um, because uh, for Silence in the Lamps, because Buffalo Bill, the character, mm-hmm. is essentially a trans character, mm-hmm. born a man and constructing a skin suit so mm-hmm. he can live how he feels he mm-hmm. should be as a woman um, after being denied a sex change sure. operation. Um, and so the writer Ted Talley was like he was really aware of how it was going to come off sure. even then, like, um, and he was dreading it. Yeah, um, which is a really difficult place for a writer to be because. Mm-hmm. You know that you can't put in all of the things that the book had because mm-hmm. the book had all these moments where you really get into um, uh, that Jamie Gum's, um, you know, personality and, you know, where he was as a child and mm-hmm. why he is the way he is. Mm-hmm. Um, not- and that it was really a, an effect of trauma. That yes. it was it was less, you know, that he was doing this as a reaction rather yes. than else. Yeah. Uh, it was like things. years and years yeah. of trauma as opposed to just being trans. Right. Which when you have very few trans characters or none at all except yeah. for this one character who is a villain. Um, Particularly then, this time. I mean, we barely have trans characters now, but exactly. back then. Yeah, that's so, it. Um, and it's one of those things where um, it could have been worse than it is. Yeah. But the thing is that um, the wonderful character actor Ted Levine mm-hmm. um, had come in and he said that he wanted to make Buffalo Bill, you know, he was weird, but he wanted to make him a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. And I, I I, remember thinking, and, and other people are going to have different opinions about this, but I remember thinking that his character, I did feel really bad for him. Mm-hmm. That Like, this is not, like, there was no other way. Like, I, I had a lot of sympathy for that character. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, this goes back to the gray area thing that we're talking about, yeah. you know, is that I think it's important to have empathy for everyone, uh, every mm-hmm. character. I think it's important for an audience member to be able to put their sh- themselves in the shoes of every character, yes. including the villain. Yes. Um, it only intensifies your sort of your emotions towards that villain, uh, be them positive or negative. But, you know. Well, what about you? When you're working on something, yeah. you know, do you stray away from a controversial character? Like, do you, are you, I mean, like, because you've got, if you're working on this uh, only, like, what you're telling yeah. me about only playing left in the sky, is that, yeah. that's a name? Yeah, only playing in the sky. Only yep. playing in the sky. Yep. Then that, to me, seems like you're going to have a lot of... George W. Bush. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how do you portray these people? Do you make them too sympathetic? Do you... Right. I think I think the, the goal for me is to just make them human. The goal okay. for me is just to make them have flaws and faults and 
positive attributes and all of these things that are just as human as anybody else. Yeah. You know, um, I think particularly with George W. Bush, um, I felt very strongly that the article – it's interesting because he's not interviewed in the article. So um, there – it's a lot of talking about him. But the talking about him um, – by the end of the, re- the reading of the article, I felt a lot of empathy for him. I felt mm-hmm. a lot of empathy for this person because I had put myself in a person's shoes that I had never done before. You yeah. know, I had I had never actually thought about from his perspective what that day was. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, you are thinking at 8 o'clock in the morning that you're going to be the president that, you know, defends education. And three hours later, you're a wartime president. You know, I think that shift in your perspective is monumental and not to go lightly. And so that was actually one of the big reasons I wanted to do the movie was because I wanted to take on the challenge of providing empathy or or attempting empathy for um, this person that I think we haven't seen depicted in in at least fictional films, um, I think, as a three-dimensional character, as, you know, he's been satirized for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm already worried about the reactions. I'm like, yo, is she humanizing him too? much you like because it's like what you know it's hard to write a character well, like and, this and it's funny because i mean i i agree with Tatali, you really can't think about that you know i yeah. i um you know when we made the post about Catherine graham and ben bradley yeah the first people who broke the story are the new york times and and we give all due credit to them in the film and in the script we just chose not to write a movie about them and i knew we all knew that when when People, well, when the script came out, when you know people started talking about it, people were like, "Well, why didn't you write the movie about the New York Times?" Yeah. And for me, it was because I was writing a movie about Catherine Graham. You know that that was why it was because I was telling the story of Catherine Graham, and frankly, the the story of the Pentagon Papers was the way it was the framing device of it. Yeah. You know, look, we got. I don't know that lucky is the right word, but um, it was coincidental that then everything that happened in the last year and a half ended Mm -hmm. up – we ended up paralleling a lot of the things from 1971. Um, And so there there was a lot of material there. But, um, you know, I I think when you're writing something, particularly because – when you're writing, you're just the only person staring at a blank screen. Yeah. If you're second guessing yourself, then then everyone else is going to second guess you. You know, you yeah. kind of just have to finish. And there's nine thousand reasons not to finish something. So if I'm worried about how somebody's going to feel about a certain character, then yeah, I'm never going to finish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fuck the critics, but also like seriously, pay us. But <laughs> but also, but also, but also, we're not that bad. But you know what? But you know what? Also, like. I want somebody to tell me I'm wrong about something. I mean, please don't. But I mean, <laughs> but like, if I, I mean, like, I I want to hear a different perspective. It, mm-hmm. it only makes us all better if we hear different perspectives. If I hear something of how I didn't think of something some way, that might be just because I literally never occurred to me to think that way, and yeah. now I will. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that criticism uh, evolves to be more of a discussion. Yeah. Than, than what we've we've had before, but I'm 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 excited about that in the future. I'm excited about this project. <laughs> I want to get into some more writing craft stuff. Yeah. Because um, I think that you know people sometimes you know the writer can't dictate how the director directs a picture, mm-hmm. right? We we already know that. But there are certain things in the script, certain pieces of dialogue that can really inform you know how the director is going to mm-hmm. approach it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I love about the script, you know, Demi. He had already wanted to be doing extreme close-ups um, with the subjective mm-hmm. camera before he even started this film because he um, 
he, he basically felt these monologues, they kind of demanded them. And also he'd been working with Roger Corman mm-hmm. and with such a low budget, like you yeah. really, you cannot do like yeah. long takes with a close up, you yeah. know, like that. You're just... doing a, you're doing one take with six people in the room. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, he couldn't do that before and this was like his chance. Um, but he had these characters, they were really, they were performing right into camera. They were looking right into camera, uh, which is unnerving in itself, but we're really focused on their faces and like the subtlety of their performances, like fucking looking at Jodie Foster's face. Oh, my God. Um, And it's because they're giving these monologues, right? Mm -hmm. So for my money, I would say I don't think there are enough monologues in films anymore. I appreciate that. I appreciate Um, that. I think that we prize, like, the quick back-and-forth dialogue, which is super wonderful when it's done well. I love that. But it's also really great to see a trained actor digging into a monologue, allowing us to see their character's evolution and thought over the sustained, Mm -hmm. you know, shot, this this period of Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about... The monologue. Like, yeah. do you feel, are you pro, con? I'm pro if it's done well. I'm okay. very pro. I mean, okay. here's the thing. What I'm pro of above anything else is actors. Like, I, I, um, I write screenplays because I want them to become visualized. Yes. I work in a visual medium. If I wanted things to be completely read and if interpreted off of the page, then I would write books. Yes. Um, so, you know, it is a huge part of my process while I'm writing um, to visualize how this is going to be read by an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I often write with actors' voices in my heads, uh, in my heads, in my specific On her head, heads. All of them. Uh, but, you know, I, because I think it helps me – I do write a lot of dialogue, um, so it helps me differentiate voices. It helps me um, find intonation and find variances in um, a character's – voice in a char- mm-hmm. in a way a character looks at things. Um, the monologue in particular, I have definitely been prone to write monologues. Um, another project that I'm working on right now, uh, there are a lot of monologues in it. And um, I think you kind of, as a writer working today, you are very discouraged from that because oh, yeah, it is – like it is just not practiced, and it I'm is. I'm trying to think of like film history of like when that started, where we weren't allowed to to do. Mm. I mean, I think so much of it has to do. I mean, I don't know. I, I definitely can't. I, I definitely am not going to try and crack crack a, a, a crack the code on that. But I will say that I think like so much has changed since TV has become prevalent. Yeah, and we have such a little amount of. Um, attention from an audience. Yeah. And so I think expecting an audience to pay attention for a four-minute monologue or a two-minute monologue or however mm-hmm. is is really asking a lot. And yeah. it is also really relying on both the director and the actor. I mean, but for me, you know, the monologue in the end of The American President where he looks into the camera and says, like, my name is Andrew Shepard and I am the president. I could probably recite that entire monologue. <laughs> and the thing about that monologue is it tells you everything you need to know about the character. It tells you everything you need to know about the journey that character's been on, about, by the way, that monologue is about gun control and the environment. So we've, we've, <laughs> Just come, so you know. we've come a really long way since then. Yeah. Um, but it, I think that if it's done beautifully, if it's crafted well, and if it's performed well and directed well, you can really get nuances that you, you don't often get with back and forth dialogue. And we're talking really specifically performed well because yep. in this movie they're yep. performed really I read that um uh Anthony Hopkins he said in interviews that he reads every script that he does two hundred and fifty times exactly out loud. 
Oof. and that he uh, he memorizes uh, to recite a poem every single week to keep wow. his mind sharp. Wow. And so he's like he literally yeah. 250 times he reads this. So by the time that he gets into that yeah. room, you know, he he can understand like the the pauses in between each word, like the, the intonation. Mm. The, like he just he lives inside the dialogue. Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No, I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition has given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia... Is your father there? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? Well, and what and what's interesting so much about this performance in particular is that he doesn't blink when he speaks. Never. He blinks once in yep. the entire movie. Yep. A long, slow yep. blink. I love it. Yeah. And he, and so like just to imagine the physicality of that as the performer that you are training yourself not to blink while you are. T- I mean, very long monologues that are very intense, and this interesting cadence that Hannibal has throughout it. You know, this yeah. kind of like at times very monotone, at times very mocking. You know, he really, there's such an amazing, and to imagine that he's staring into the camera. He's not looking at a scene partner. No. I mean, that's the thing I think that goes really sort of overlooked in a lot of this is, and I'm, I'm sure Jody was standing right next to the camera. Yeah, and they giving, probably had that what that mm, thing that like, yeah. the mirror and the thing that I'm you sure, look at her. I'm sure that they had, because it, the, the everyone had to do it, so I'm sure there was a there was something they'd done with it. But I mean, you're still you're not looking a person in the eye; you're looking camera in the eye. Yeah. Um, so the amount of skill that that takes is really remarkable, and yeah. I think as as appreciated as his performance is given in, given in this the performance he gives in this movie is appreciated. That is very much to be uh, acknowledged. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Meryl Streep for a second. <laughs> Because it's one of those things where I think I always take her for granted. And then, like, my husband and I, when we watch The Post together, like, there's one scene where it's a, a long, kind of slow push on mm-hmm. push in on her face mm-hmm. as she's talking on the phone. Mm-hmm. And um, you get to see her, like, emotions kind of wash mm-hmm. over her face and change and, mm-hmm. and evolve. And... I think after that scene, my husband and I are like, oh, fuck, she's good. Yeah. You know, like you like you're reminded again and again, like how good this person is. And I was wondering, you know, like you you were on set, you were mm-hmm. around. Like, did you get to see her preparing for anything? Like, how yeah. does she prepare? Well, she. so it's funny because people have asked me, like, what's the thing that's most surprising to you about the post? And I have to say it like really. It's the same thing, which is Meryl Streep. Like, I knew she was going to be amazing. I knew she was yeah. going to be. But the levels to which she's able to give you are stunning and breathtaking. And the funny thing about that scene that I'll say is um, so that push in is uh, we're really, really tight on Meryl's face. Yeah. And when she was breathing for the first couple of takes, she would go in and out of focus because she was, you know, she was breathing and, and we were oh, so and her close. Head was going back and her and head was going back. back and forth a little bit. And so we had to ask her if she could, we, Stephen had to ask her if she could stop breathing so physically so that she wouldn't go. And this, I mean, this is how amazing Meryl Streep is. She does it. She's like, okay. And she figures it, this whole performance that she's figured out, she figures out how to physically stop herself from moving so that she doesn't go out of focus. Wow. Um, 
And I think like those are just those are things about professional actors that they know how to do this. I mean, it's not only the performance, but it's the ability to adapt to the technicalities of it all. You know. Yeah, I think about her character in in the post was really fascinating to me because I feel like I've seen her most recently in a lot of roles where she has the very strong woman. Mm-hmm. And so to take her back um, again, you know, when my husband and I are watching, mm-hmm. we're like, she's. It's weird that she's so delicate and mm-hmm. weak. Yeah. In in the early yeah parts of it, because like in my head, I'm like, yes, now it's is Meryl. the time where well, Meryl like. You know, speaks out as yeah. Kay, and that doesn't happen. You don't get that right mm-hmm. away because that's not who the character is. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, Jodie Foster, when she took on Silence in the Lambs, she had only played the brash, yeah. loud character, and that's why Jonathan Demi didn't want her. He right. was just like, no, yeah. And I, I love that, like, she was attracted to the delicacy of mm-hmm. this of this character, and mm. that, um, uh, and that was her her word, delicacy, mm-hmm. and that. Um, uh, she would still get to be the hero. Yeah, at I mean, the end. it's interesting too that and save an, a woman saving another woman. That I mean, which uh, I, I actually read something that uh, Jody had said, which she thought this was an evolution of Taxi Driver, also her character in Taxi Driver. Which oh, I was, love that. I which, love yeah, that. Yeah, and I like that. This sort of book ended her character in Taxi Driver, and then she becomes the woman saving the woman in, in Silence of the Lambs, which oh, I, I was like, I, I really, I, I thought that was such a great sort of way to have those two roles or talk about those two roles. But um, I love that she refers to Clarice as delicate, too, mm-hmm. and, and, and sees her that way because I think she is. I mean, the first time we meet her, she's running and she's doing this obstacle course, right? But she has, like, pearl earrings in, you yeah. know? I mean, and she's, like, very feminine. And when she meets with Hannibal, she's very well-dressed and she has lipstick on and he comments on the perfume. I mean, there are things about her that I think, A, are she understands that she's a, still a woman in a man's world and yeah. she still understands the you know, quote unquote part that she has to play in that. Um, But it's also like she is kind of a good West Virginia girl, right? She is kind of this girl that grew up knowing where she, you know, where she is, where she's from and that kind of stuff. So I love the idea that she, you know, and it goes the same with the Post. I mean, it's the same with Kay Graham. You know, she was a woman who was raised in a man's world, never anticipated running a company never anticipated yeah. being anything other and than And she a, also is very feminine. Very feminine, very you those know those outfits. I mean, we all love those outfits. The caftan. Mm. That caftan. Um love it. Uh, I mean, I think that I, I mean, talking about the team, Anne Roth on the post and Colleen Atwood on Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Um the thing about having a great team around you and particularly, I mean, just with these two with the costume designer is that they understand the character. Um, uh, we are going to take a quick break, but I want to get into um, a little bit more about the violence or lack thereof and how to build tension in a scene. All right, right back. Hi, I'm Vince. And I'm Teresa. And we host One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. Whether you are a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. Turns out it isn't what we thought it would be. For example, stickers on car windows? It's no longer about what type of monster would let that happen, and more like realizing you are that monster. So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Download One Bad Mother on MaximumFun.org or Apple Podcasts. And yes, there will be swears. All 
And welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined here today by Liz Hanna. What's up? We're talking Silence of the Lambs. So when I was writing the synopsis of this film, I was a little surprised uh, because usually for genre movies that I'm dissecting, um, there's a lot of plot points to hit. There's a lot of things happening, um, a lot of violence, a lot of crazy scenes. Um, But I realized that in Silence of the Lambs, there is predominantly talking. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ted Talley said, quote, I had a conversation with Jonathan years ago about how this movie broke so many rules about how to make an effective Hollywood thriller. (laughs) It's very talky. It's very intellectual. There are no car chases or explosions. The main character is a woman rather than a man. She's never in direct physical danger until the end of the movie. It just broke all the rules. Love it. Honestly, by all metrics, there's no obvious reason why this film would go down as one of the best horror thrillers ever made. Yeah. But it is, you know, instead like this execution, this atmosphere that uh, was created by Demi, the production designers. The, the subject. I mean, it's also the subject it. matter. Yeah. The subject matter, too. And it elicits so much dread and it's a scary fucking movie. But it's like played on TBS. I mean, that's the thing I think that's yeah. interesting to me is like this movie is legitimately played on like just basic cable. Yes. Because it's not violent. It's not gory. It doesn't break the rules. It, you don't have to cut things out. You don't. I mean, the thing that really struck me when I was rewatching this is the um, Polaroid that Shelton shows chose Clarice when right before she goes to meet him for the first time is like the last time that he got brought out this was the nurse and this is what happened to her yeah and she looks and we get super super close on her face and she looks at it I bet you before I rewatched that movie I'd be like oh yeah this is what the nurse's face looks like you never see you never see it you get to see like a like there's a really beautiful shot of I mean it's beautiful but his victim when he oh, yeah. he escapes the cage and yeah. so he's he's you know got kind of like an angel look yeah. and I remember they were looking I can't remember which painter Francis were, Bacon thank you Francis yep. Bacon mm-hmm. yeah like just trying to make it look beautiful I was struck more by how horrifically beautiful it was than just the the terror of it, the way it was shot. Yeah. I mean, quite honestly, the two sort of like most violent or grotesque things for me in the movie are when Hannibal's wearing the face. Just because you don't – I think because it's so disarming. You don't know what that is and you – and then when you realize it's that's what's horrible about it. It's actually less what is on it. It's what he did. Yeah. And then the body in the bathtub is pretty gross. It's pretty gross. The the grandma in the bathtub is pretty gnarly. It's funny though. Like he – Still, even with that, you don't you don't have to cut anything out. I, and I like that genre films are they're maybe getting to that like Get Out is one. Oh yeah, obviously, and The Shape of Water, which is doing yeah. it with monster movies. Yeah. Like maybe we're moving into this time where we can appreciate genre in this way, and that's why I like I like that you're saying that Steven Spielberg was like, we need to make this a thriller, even though mm-hmm. it's a like a biopic. Yeah, and that if you can, you know, make these infuse genre yeah. into these things and make sure. it important at the Academy Awards. Well, because I think nothing rep- is represented in one sort of world anymore. You know what I mean? Like yeah. nothing is just a drama. Nothing is just a comedy. Nothing is just anything anymore because I don't think that's that's not how things are being made and I don't think no. that's how audiences are watching them. Um, and I think, you know, for me, um, I... You know, I loved Get Out last year. I've talked about it a lot. Like, I thought Get Out was remarkable. Um, Not uh, probably uh, for one of the biggest reasons is because Jordan convinced everybody that he was making a horror film. Yeah. And then you walked out and you're like, wait, was that the most culturally relevant film I've seen in like five (laughs) years? Um, 
So it's, I think the melding of things, and I agree, I think with being able to have genre films be recognized, um, you know, I think Guillermo said it, said it so wonderfully at the Academy Awards is like, you know, being a creative person in any way, so much about it is being an outcast because you're in your head so much. And so much about it is being like the underdog and the weirdo and just trying to make your stories come out into the world. And Guillermo's stories are about monsters. You know, mm-hmm. his, his stories. And this one happened to be about a fish man falling in love with a woman, a human um, or a human falling in love with a fish man, whichever, which, whichever <laughs> way. And they won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. I mean, I don't think I don't think anybody really banked on that one if he pitched it that way no. five years ago. No. Yeah. But it's just I mean, uh, it makes me excited for, um, you know, people who are younger in their careers like mm-hmm. you who are getting to witness that right now and you can say like this is my expansive horizon for what I can create. It's really exciting I think because it's also it's exciting to see the audiences want that. Mm -hmm. I mean I think that's really what it is is like you're seeing audiences drift towards the you know get the get outs the um the shapes of water you're seeing them want to see these sort of quirky movies you know and it you know for all of us it's very exciting because there's no one thing that actually works anymore there's a lot of different things I'm very excited to see how this affects the the George W. Bush 9-11 <laughs> Air Force a, One movie. This is going to be very interesting. Spoiler alert, there's a fish man. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Liz, it was so awesome having you in. Thank you so much Thank for talking you. with me about this movie and about The Post and what you're working on now. And awesome. The Post is still available to watch. It is. And actually, we come out um, digital April 3rd. Wonderful. Hey, it's your host, April Wolf here, still sick, still in the future. Um, But I want to thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, I want to let you know that we'll be talking to actor, writer, and now director Heather Graham about Fatal Attraction and her latest film, Half Magic. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. Wings and Fins says, I recommended this podcast to my genre specialist friend Penny after hearing an ad. Later, she recommended it right back to me, and I discovered that it's for relative neophytes, too. Even if you don't know the film, you'll enjoy listening to experts who obviously have genuine delight in their subject. That's like the, the kind of like the basis of a rom-com that I love recommending a podcast and having it recommended back to you also connor holt said so many great guests and topics can't wait to see isa lopez's tigers are not afraid oh my god i know i'm cannot wait to share it with america you guys have been waiting for this for so long um if you want to let us know what you think of the show you can tweet at us at, at switchblade pod or email us at switchblade sisters at maximumfun.org and please check out our facebook group facebook.com backslash groups backslash switchblade sisters our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.